Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Welcome to the Witch Money Podcast, your weekly hit of money news and personal finance hacks to help make you better off. I'm your host, Lucia Ariano, and here's what's coming up this week. The best description I can call the market at the moment, in the main, is that it's frothy. So there's something like 20 buyers chasing every one property that's out there. Way over 80% of people, approaching 90% of people if they're asked, say that they would like to own their own hope to have a stake in the country for themselves and and their families. And we want to make that opportunity real for people. So savers shouldn't be discouraged about saving for a home. There are lots of options out there for them to start building apart, even if you have very little or you have a, a lump sum. This week is a must listen if you're a first time buyer or if you know anyone, children, grandchildren, parents, friends, anyone looking to get on the property ladder in the near future. Because looking back to 2020, first time buyers took a big hit. According to research from Halifax, numbers fell by a hefty 13%. But this isn't really surprising given the housing market as a whole came to a halt when the government urged buyers and sellers not to move or hold viewings. And the real big hitter was that small deposit mortgages practically dried up with nine out of 10 coming off the market. But since autumn, things have been looking up for first-time buyers. And today I'm joined by which property expert, Stephen Maunder. Steve, thanks for joining us. How's it looking now and what's changed over the last 10 months or so to give first-time buyers a boost? Well, there's no doubt that last year was a really tough year for first-time buyers. As you say, with all of the mortgages disappearing off the market, house prices rising after the stamp duty holiday. But things are levelling off a little bit now. Uh, We saw that big rise with people looking to get the tax breaks. But as the year continues, we're likely to see the market slow a little In addition to that, mortgages, we're going to discuss a little bit later in the podcast, but mortgage availability is getting much better. Interest rates are falling and it is easier than before now to get a mortgage with just a 5% or 10% deposit. So it's not perfect for first-time buyers. It is still difficult, especially when it comes to saving a big enough deposit to buy. But there's no doubt that things are getting a little easier than they were last year. And since the start of the year, the government has announced plans to help first-time buyers trying to get a foothold in the market. And Steve, to share more on this for the podcast, you've been straight to the source speaking to the Minister for Housing, Chris Pincher. Let's first hear what he had to say. We are WITCH. Thanks for joining us today on the WITCH Money podcast, Mr Pincher. Um, Just to start with, Could you provide an outline of the government's new Own Your Home suite of initiatives that you've recently launched? Yes, of course. Well, the objective of the campaign is to make home ownership as realistic 
and affordable an option for as many people as possible. As I'm sure you all know, Steve, if you conducted surveys or looked at any number of them, uh, way over 80% of people, approaching 90% of people if they're asked, say that they would like to own their own home, to have a stake in the country for themselves and, and their families. And we want to make that opportunity real for people. And so the Own Your Own Home campaign essentially showcases the suite of options that we provide to people to get onto the property ladder from the First Home Initiative, which has just been launched to help to buy the help to buy equity loan, which has been around for some time, the mortgage guarantee scheme, which underwrites mortgages of 95% loan to value, and all underpinned by our determination to build more homes so that the country has the right homes in the right place that it needs for purchase or for rent so that uh, people have a home that they can call their own. So if I'm a first-time buyer and I've saved up a deposit and I'm looking to find out what scheme to use, is there any kind of tool I can get on to find which is the most suitable, whether that's help to buy, shared ownership or first homes? Well, if they go on the own your home website, then they can learn more about each of those schemes. But it depends, I think, whether the individual is looking for a discounted product, in which case the first home initiative, which discounts properties by at least 30%, may be the route. If they're looking for a, uh, a loan uh, to help them uh, with the purchase of their property, then the help to buy route may be appropriate. If um, they haven't got um, so much money to spare, then perhaps buying a share of a property through our affordable homes program, where in the new program between 2021 and 2026, uh, people living um, in housing association properties that are part of our affordable homes provider scheme will be able to purchase uh, a 10% stake rather than the previous minimum, which is 25%, a 10% stake in that uh, property and then add to it by 1% increments. There are a range of means by which people can get on the property ladder. And um, I think if they look at the Own Your Home website or talk to uh, lenders, then they can find the best means for them. So these schemes are very headline grabbing. We've seen the success of Help to Buy and we've seen really all of the interest in and press around first homes this year. But while some schemes have done so well and been so popular, others such as the Starter Homes Initiative have really fallen flat and never got off the ground. So while these announcements are headline grabbing, how can the government show it's committed to really pressing on with these in the long term and helping as many people buy a home as possible? Well, the first thing we want to do is to get people onto the property ladder. So the First Home Initiative allows people to get onto the property ladder, get a stake in the local community. People move, on average, about once every 20 years. So I suspect that some people will remain for quite a period of time in their first home. But over the period of their residency, they'll be able to build up an equity stake in that property, assuming that property values continue to rise, and they'll be able to use that equity value, admittedly with the discount added into it at point of sale, um, in order to put down a deposit for 
another and different home if that's what they choose to do. The point is to get people onto the property ladder, give them the opportunity to own their home, home, have an equity stake, and that can then be used in future for future purchases. We'll hear again from the Minister later on the mortgage guarantee scheme and cladding. But first, let's pick up on the first home scheme. Now, Steve, you mentioned that there have been some very attention-grabbing headlines recently. And actually, I'm really pleased you said that because when I first heard about the scheme, it sounded too good to be true. You know, a discount of 30% or more on a property, which pitted up against some of the other initiatives, the help to buy equity loan, where you'll end up paying interest on the loan, and shared ownership, where you pay rent on the portion owned by the government. It seems like a no-brainer. Is it the most attractive offer on the table for first-time buyers? What do you make of the new scheme? And for anyone not familiar with the others, how does it compare? Well, there's no doubt that first homes do seem like a great idea on paper, with discounts of at least 30% on new build properties. But there are some caveats to this. I mean, we're looking at 1,500 homes being built under the scheme this year, with a target of at least 10,000 next year. We're really talking relatively small numbers here. And the minister did say that there will be the prospect of possibly extending that if it goes well in the future. But the other issue is that councils are allowed to choose who gets priority for homes built under the scheme. So that could mean they give them to key workers or you know, they, they look at specific groups within their local area. So it could be a real battle to actually be one of the lucky people who gets a property. And there are also issues around cutting the upfront cost of buying to improve affordability. Now, this is something the government's already done with help to buy, as you say, where you take a loan from the government and then you repay that loan when you sell. Now, the key takeaway from the minister's comments is that these schemes are very much about getting you onto the property ladder. That's the key aim. So whether you can then progress up the ladder in future really depends on you either living in the property long enough to build up enough equity or relying on external factors such as the value of the home continuing to rise. What this all signals is that there's little chance of house prices falling significantly anytime soon. So what the government is trying to do is, rather than reducing the market prices of homes, just helping first-time buyers to afford those high price tags. Hello, Witch Money podcast listener. I'm Greg Foote. I'm the presenter of the new Witch Investigates podcast. Every Friday, we release new episodes looking into claims of sustainability to see if they have genuine eco effects or whether they're just simply greenwashing. So far this series, I've tackled electric cars, plant-based diets, heat pumps and hydrogen, and we've got some more on the way. This week, I'm asking if we can ever fly on holiday with a clear conscience. To give you a bit of context, uh, each passenger on a return flight from London to Singapore would account for around three tonnes of carbon dioxide. And that's around about the equivalent of heating a family home for a year. And next Friday, I'll be exploring the impact working from home has had on the planet and whether that should impact what comes next. But there's a really important consideration here when it comes to this flexibility of working, which is that most of our homes are a lot older, draftier and colder and hence less efficient than our offices. So there is a really big sustainability challenge of lots more flexible work, even if there is less travel as a result. To listen, just search for Witch Investigates wherever you get your podcasts. OK, now back to the cheer. And Steve... 
can we just pick up on that point about the financial value of getting on the property ladder? The minister describes it as building up an equity stake. And interestingly, he then adds that that's assuming property prices continue to rise. We've been speaking to property expert Kate Faulkner about the state of house prices right now. The best description I can call the market at the moment in the main not everywhere and I'll explain that in a minute is that it's frothy so there's something like 20 buyers chasing every one property that's out there so if you don't necessarily have to move at this moment you might just want to hang back a little bit if you found the property of your dreams because it's come come up for sale then you're probably going to have to go for it but you're probably going to have to be quite flexible on what you pay for it which if you're going to live in it for the next 20 years and it's your dream house that's not something you should kind of worry about so much but it isn't like that everywhere for example Liverpool is topping the charts for house price increases at the moment but not if you're in the postcode of L2 that is one of the worst performing postcodes out there. So it's important to understand if you're buying a property, what the market is like for that particular property. And geographically, typically, but it will vary between them. So places like London, east of England and the south, then we haven't seen the growth as much uh, in prices as everywhere else. Still sort of quite frenetic, but there's parts of London which are still delivering double digit growth and are still busy and parts of London which are pretty quiet, which is obviously a, a great time to buy. And then you've got areas in the north that, to be honest, have hardly seen that much price growth over the last sort of 10, 15 years. And the partly why they're seeing the growth now is because people have suddenly decided to move there. So Steve, can we dig a little deeper into the varying cost of buying in different places in the UK? You published an article comparing the cost of houses with average earnings in that area, which gives a really interesting insight to the actual affordability of getting on the ladder for first-time buyers. Can you talk us through it? Yeah, sure. I think as Kate rightly says, markets can be very localised. We do sometimes get carried away when we look at overall average figures. You know, we get a house price index and we say prices are up by 10% and we use that as kind of the benchmark when, in truth, these wide-ranging averages aren't always helpful. Now, that story in question was kind of analysing some data from Halifax, which showed that depending on where you buy a home, the average cost could be anywhere from three times your salary up to 11 times your salary. Now, obviously, that latter figure is way beyond what people can realistically save or borrow with a mortgage. So it really shows the difficulties facing first-time buyers in more expensive areas like London and the south of England. Now, we're not saying you must buy a house in Burnley, which was shown to be the cheapest place for annual salary to house prices or the north coast of Scotland, because for some people that simply won't be an option. But what it really does highlight is that in those more expensive areas, there's a reason why these markets are so driven by money from the bank of mum and dad and grandma and granddad, because quite simply, regardless of how many avocados you cut out your diet, there's very little chance you'll be able to afford this kind of house price. And we also asked Kate about the impact the end of the stamp duty holiday has had on the market. In England, properties under 250,000 still qualify until the end of September. But in Scotland, the holiday has well and truly ended. And she tells us this could offer an insight into the future. 
looking at the Scottish market, yes, we're seeing some pullback on year on year price growth. But actually, there are certainly some places in Edinburgh that are still selling like hotcakes. So again, it comes down to quite an individual market. In the main, we're seeing a slight slowdown. But interestingly, we're not seeing the kind of fall off the cliff stuff that we have in the past. Now, moving on to mortgages, before we hear again from Mr. Pincher, we devoted a full episode to this topic at the start of last month called A Good Time to Get a Mortgage? If you haven't heard it, it's packed full of advice. So do go back and have a listen. Now, let's first hear from the minister for his comments on the mortgage guarantee scheme. What we recognised through the pandemic was that um, the availability of mortgage products had fallen off the edge of a cliff. Certainly uh, higher loan-to-value products, products where you can borrow 90 or 95% of the total value. That's seen as a result, I think, of our intervention, uh, an increase in the number of 95% LTV products by something like 30% over the last few months. I'm led to believe there are 226 95% Uh, loan-to-value mortgages now available, something like 450, 90% loan-to-value mortgages. So although we're not back to pre-pandemic levels, we're certainly heading back in that direction. It's brilliant news that small deposit mortgages are back on the table. Steve, can we unpick the scheme a little? If you get one of these mortgages backed by the government, does it affect the mortgage at all? And what are the rates like? Are there good deals out there? There's no doubt that this scheme has made a big difference in bringing back some of the mortgages that disappeared after the start of the pandemic last year. Now, the basis of the scheme is quite simple. So lenders are reluctant to offer 95% mortgages in the current economy. So the government has taken on some of the financial risk of them doing so to really encourage those deals to come back. So since the scheme launched in April, we've seen lots of deals come onto the market, some within the scheme and some outside of it. Whether a mortgage is part of the guarantee scheme or not makes no difference at all to the borrower. That is an issue purely for the government and the lender. But all that really matters for borrowers who are listening today who want to get onto the property ladder is that mortgage rates are dropping and they've dropped quite sharply. So the first 95% deals launched under the new scheme in April were coming in at rates of just under 4%. And we've now seen these best rates drop to nearer 3.3%. This kind of rate wouldn't have been exceptional before the pandemic, but in the current market, it really does hand an olive branch to first-time buyers. The knock-on effect of this could also be significant. Lower rates on 95% mortgages will also push down the cost of 90% mortgages. So first-time buyers who can scramble together a 10% deposit will benefit too. And in terms of getting one of these high loan-to-value mortgages then, how easy is it? I suppose there's a a more general piece of advice here that I'm getting at, and it's for anyone considering how much they could borrow. These small deposit mortgages are great, but lenders will also need to see you have a large enough income to cover the amount you're borrowing. So is there a general rule of thumb that we can use to work it out? I think when I was buying, I was told four times your yearly income is the amount you could borrow. Is is that about right? Uh, Yeah, that's certainly in the kind of ballpark. I think generally speaking, lenders usually offer up to four and a half times your income as a maximum But there are some exceptions each way. So what we saw when mortgages first started coming back after the uh, lockdown 
is that some banks were launching new deals, but setting really strict rules around them. For example, you can only borrow at, say, up to four times your income, or you can only borrow £200,000, or only over 20 years. So they were putting very strict criteria on. We have actually seen things go the other way in the last few months. So Nationwide announced a few months ago that people with a 10% deposit can apply to borrow up to five and a half times their income, which is really very high. That's kind of the top end of what you would generally be allowed to access. So I think generally speaking, if if you're doing some sort of calculations of what you might be able to borrow, using four and a half times is a good rule of thumb. But the key message is that if you shop around, it does really vary between lenders and between specific deals. And this is where it could be really helpful to talk to a mortgage broker who can really be on the ball about the latest deals and criteria. But of course, even if you do have the income to cover your mortgage payments, which may well be lower than your rent costs, but that's a topic for another conversation, there's still the issue of saving up for your deposit and other costs. Now, stamp duty again, legal and moving costs. So how can you save up for that all-important deposit? We've been speaking to Rachel Springle, finance expert at moneyfacts.co.uk. And here's her top tip for building up your deposit. So savers shouldn't be discouraged about saving for a home. There are lots of options out there for them to start building apart, even if you have very little or you have a a lump sum. So if you're looking at different types of savings vehicles, you probably need to look at something like a lifetime ISA. Now, they are available to a certain age demographic and you can actually put in £4,000 a year until you're 50. And the government will pay a 25% bonus up to a maximum of £1,000 a year. So already, even if you start up that account at the age of 18 and you save until, say, you're in your 30s or so, you can at least get a fair decent amount of bonus on top of your savings. And that actually works by the money going to your conveyancer or solicitor at the point of purchase. So you don't see the bonus yourself. It goes straight into your house fund. And Rachel also shared some advice for anyone, parents or grandparents, who might want to help out a loved one and put money towards their first home. So there are a few options for grandparents and parents. You can obviously gift money to siblings. So at the moment, you have a £3,000 per year exemption for inheritance tax. And there is a seven year rule on that one. And if you're not sure about that, then it's best to go to the government website to really get into the information on whether this money is going to be tax free. Now, When you do that gifting, obviously you can do that per year, but you can also on top do um, a a wedding gift as well. So again, it's very important to have a look on the official website and to check how much exactly you can gift. But all of this combined could be a very good boost for a first-time buyer. And again, whilst they shouldn't rely on the bank of mum and dad or grandparents, if that's something they want to provide, it's early inheritance. It's something that they want to, to purchase in the right now day, it won't necessarily help them in say 10 years or so to come. So it really is an option to talk through. But again, it's really important they have the conversation before they start gifting money. And finally, Steve, and we could talk about this uh, next point for the rest of the day, I think, but we do have a moment now for cladding. Now, this is a huge problem, a scandal it's been called, and we know many of our listeners are suffering. It's left so many struggling to sell their homes and with huge bills, not to mention the mental toll it's taken. But Steve, you've taken the opportunity to ask the housing minister, Chris Pincher, what the government is doing to remedy the situation. And here's the minister's response. 
Well, I think I would say three things, Steve. Uh, the first is following the clear direction of the Hackett report, we've undertaken to spend over £5 billion pounds of uh, public funds to remove dangerous cladding and remediate tall buildings, those over 80 metres. And all of those uh, that have got dangerous cladding will have their cladding uh, removed at the public expense. What we have also done is to introduce, and in fact, um, the uh, second reading of the Building Safety Bill will take place on the 20th of July, introduce what we think is a world-class safety regime, which will make sure that in future, building safety regulation has even stronger teeth and that the public living in properties have even greater redress if they're in a tall building. And that will make sure that safety is always at the forefront of developers' minds. But the third thing that we're doing, which is really very important for the vast majority of people uh, living in in all sorts of uh, buildings of all sorts of shapes and sizes, is to uh, re-inject some sort of proportionality into the lending and risk sector. What we've got to do is to make sure that buildings which perhaps have been caught up in the EWS1 form difficulty but don't really need a huge amount of remediation or indeed any remediation at all are properly recognised and that uh, buildings can therefore have their value reascribed to them so people can get on with their lives. And we've been working closely with uh, RICS, um, who produce the EWS1 form mechanism to make sure that more properties can be effectively checked and it can be determined whether they need uh, an EWS1 form and external Wall system uh, form. We've employed more risk uh, assessors to make sure that that can happen swiftly in order that value can be reascribed to those buildings and people can get on with their lives and buy and sell properties if that's what they want to do. And Steve, before we wrap up, I'd just like to hear what you think about the current state of the cladding issue. You're at the helm of property at which seeing the stories coming in and how people have been impacted. So how has the government's funding been working at ground level? Are consumers any closer to having unsafe cladding sorted and being able to sell their homes, even remortgage? Yes, we've seen many instances of blameless leaseholders facing financial and emotional turmoil over cladding and related building safety issues. Um, As the minister says, the government has put a pot of funding forward, but those affected ultimately don't believe that it even scratches the surface of what's needed with lots of properties just not covered by the remediation pot. Even aside from remediation, they believe there are serious gaps in funding to cover things like the cost of waking watches and spiralling buildings insurance premiums. In fact, on the very day we're recording this, there's a group of affected leaseholders that's staging a protest march in London, and I believe there are some others to follow too. Unfortunately, this situation seems like it's likely to run and run. And at this stage, it appears unlikely it'll be resolved to everyone's satisfaction anytime soon. Thanks, Steve. We're just touching the surface, aren't we? There's a lot more to discuss um, and we'll have to get you back on and revisit uh, cladding in the near future. So listeners, um, do keep an eye out for that. 
Thanks again to Steve and thank you for listening to today's show. We always love to hear from you. So if you've got a comment or question on anything we've mentioned today, please let us know in the comments wherever you're listening to the podcast or on social media at Which Money. And for more on home buying mortgages or to find our first time buyer's guide, visit which.co.uk forward slash property. This episode of the Witch Money podcast was recorded by Ian Aikman, produced by Rob Lilly, edited by Eric Breer, with additional support from Kim Carver. Music